The Insulone Podcast is brought to you by Cybionics, an emerging CGM brand that focuses on simplifying how individuals aged 18 and above monitor and control their blood sugar levels. Upon becoming available on the market, the Cybionics GS1 CGM has helped users worldwide navigate the complexities of diabetes management with more confidence and peace of mind. Thanks to Cybionics, now more people are able to view and share their real-time glucose data, receive customizable glucose alarms, and generate full AGP reports, all directly from an intuitive Cybionics app, empowering them with the necessary information to make better decisions about their health. Cybionics combines data accuracy and comfort of wear, which is important to us all, with a feature-rich app. The 14-day scanning-free and calibration-free Cybionics GS1 CGM aims to deliver reliable, seamless diabetes management experiences. For more, check out CybionicsCGM.com. This is the Insulone Podcast, where I, own Costello, try to redefine diabetes. In this week's episode, the diabetes-related amputation rate in New York City and New York State has increased 100% in the past 10 years. We have never heard a single health commissioner ever made one single public comment on this horrifying situation. But before we get into that, everything you hear on the Insulone podcast is from my own personal experience. And if you have any worries or issues regarding your diabetes, please contact a medical professional. Now, let's get stuck into this episode. Good afternoon and welcome back to the Insulone Podcast. As always, as I say every week and as I mean it every week, it's a pleasure to have you here and I'm delighted that you've come back for another episode of the podcast. The guest that I have today is Chris Norwood, who is a prize-winning author and healthcare advocate. She is the founder and executive director of Health People, which is a community preventative health institute. We will link that below. Chris was one of the first journalists to sound an alarm about HIV and AIDS in the early 1980s before it was widely recognized as a deadly epidemic, as diabetes is, as you will hear now in this podcast. She also authored the first book on women and HIV, Advice for Life, A Woman's Guide to AIDS which came out in 1987 and became the inspiration for Chris founding Health People, then known as Health Force, in 1990 as a women's prevention and support program. Chris is a pioneer in using peer education to enable communities to take control of their health and has been recognized nationally and internationally for her work in HIV, AIDS, and peer-delivered health education including diabetes, as you will hear all about. In 2005, Chris was one of just a thousand women nominated worldwide for a special Nobel Peace Prize for women's work in community health. She is a member of the Community Coordinating Council for the Bronx Center to Reduce and Eliminate Ethnic and Racial Health Disparities. She is a member of the Center of Excellence at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. She is a member of the Bronx Einstein Alliance for Tobacco-Free Health. She is a member of the Community Advisory Board of Albert Einstein College of Medicine AIDS and Research Center. She is also 
the member of the Chronic Disease Prevention Group of the New York State Health Department Prevention Agenda Committee. And she is also a past member of the Board of Directors of the Public Health Association of New York City. As you can quite clearly hear, Chris has contributed extensively to research on community health issues. In this episode, myself and Chris focus a lot on the reality of insulin access and affordability in the United States, something which may be quite alien to you if you live somewhere else and receive state-funded insulin and diabetic supplies, much like we do in Ireland. And we have spoken about this a few times before in the podcast, and we've had a couple of guests that have spoken about it in detail as well too. But for me, what really, well, a story that I always think of, which makes this so real, is a client that we have inside our Type 1% program and somebody who I would now consider a friend, Katie Leslie, who actually did an episode of the podcast with us not so long ago. She obviously lives with type 1 diabetes and her brother, who also lived with type 1 diabetes, died as a result of essentially not having enough insulin. And it's just an unbelievable thought, to say the very least. So this episode is completely eye-opening. If currently you're somebody who may not be aware of what it's like for some people in terms of trying to gain access to insulin and their supplies, and Chris goes into a lot of important detail and also the reality of the consequences of not having this sort of access consistently. So please enjoy the episode. I hope you take a lot from it. I'll chat to you soon. So we, Chris, we, like I had said to you prior, we have a lot of listeners inside and outside of the US. And I was wondering, like, could you tell us a bit more about the reality of insulin pricing and ultimately access to insulin in the US historically and currently? Well, the access really has to do with um, the strange health insurance pattern in the United States. And people, uh, people are low income, mainly their insulin is paid by Medicaid. Then you have various levels of insurance and you also have a lot of people without insurance. The insurers, we have so many insurance companies, it would go you know, company by company how much they would pay. Uh, Medicare, amazingly enough, which is for older people, uh, they paid very low and, and you know, older people who are retired, uh, again, their income goes down. They had a lot of co-pays. But the main people who got so gypped would be working class people, especially working class people who weren't in a union that would get them some health insurance. You know, all these people, like we celebrated during the pandemic, the service people who went to work, you know, who still stood there and got you your food and did your checkout. And all those people in those kinds of jobs 
and it's it's really an indictment of the United States. They're the ones who are so often lacking insurance. And as you know, this for people, it is such, you know, because they may have the money this month, next month something happens, maybe the car needs to be fixed, they don't have the money that month. It keeps them, it's not just a health matter, which I know you all know very well. It keeps them in a constant state of uh, tension and stress which is also bad for diabetes. And really, one of the saddest stories I ever heard was, um, uh, well, there's a lot of sad stories, but our, our state senator here in New York uh, held just before COVID a, a hearing on the insulin prices. And there was a young woman there. Her brother had come to her. He didn't have enough money that month for his insulin. And, you know, he was just asking. Of course, she wanted to give her brother the money, but she didn't have any money either. So it affects the whole families. We've obviously very much had people die. We've had teenagers die from this, which is extremely upsetting. So that's the way it is. It varies, but it, it, it kept not just ill health. It kept a terrible tension throughout, I would say, classes of people. So essentially, it's... It's not just the stress of living with the condition itself, but it's also the reality of, do I have enough to cover my insurance or do I have enough to cover my supplies to basically keep me alive this month? Exactly. Uh, yeah, I, think, I think the right word is existential. You're putting actually now millions of people in an existential, a constant ed- existential crisis. And that is really, really a nasty thing to do as public policy. So is it currently, Chris, still the case that if you don't have insurance and you don't have enough money at any given time for your insulin, you simply just don't get it? Well, now I think you can get it for $35 for, as I say, selected insulin products. As you know, Owen, after companies announce these things, you have to spend a lot of time sitting, right, and analyzing exactly what they've announced. I mean, we all, the Biden administration, and yes, they tried, but what they ended up doing was, uh, before this, they they made the, uh, last year they put through legislation. So it was a 35 cap for people on Medicare. And we were all reading the 35 cap went through. So we all thought, but it was only for people. I mean, God bless them. They should have it. But, and and so everyone got very confused. Why was this still going on? Because they'd all read about this $35 cap, but it was for people on Medicare. It wasn't for everybody. But now I think most people, and again, it takes a lot of time to read through exactly what people are saying and interpreting it. But I do think that most people now, even if they don't have insurance for $35 a month, they can. Uh, but if they don't have insurance, of course, they have to somehow get a prescription for this. <laughs> and what's, what's the reality of that then for Chris who doesn't have that insurance or somebody who doesn't have Medicare? Like, what does it actually look like for them each month to get the supplies that they need? 
well, it really looks terrible. Again, that population has been brought way down by some of the actions in the past couple of years, but there shouldn't be a population like that at all. This may sound like a, a very simplistic sort of question to ask, but how do they get away with this? It's phenomenally cheap to manufacture the insulin. Yes, it but- certainly is. When it was the inventors sold it for $1, as you know, I forget what year that was. I was around in the 30s or 40s. Uh, anyway, they sold it for $1 because they knew what it was, but they wanted everyone to have access to. They didn't, they didn't take royalties. They, didn't, they wanted it to be produced and made available. So it's really one of the saddest stories in, in, in medicine and drug development that the developer said, I won't make any money out of this. You know, I refuse. I want to stand on everyone having this. And then it was perverted through the pharmaceutical industry. But I think if you look at in the United States, uh, for us, the problem is not that we don't have the money to make sure people have this. I mean, for some countries with the rates of diabetes, that is getting to be the problem. And it's a very serious, serious issue in the United States. It's not just the lack of some kind of comprehensive and comprehensible health insurance. It's that we have a level that it doesn't exist anywhere else where medicine, I mean, now we call it a sickness industry, not a medical industry. And really, it's just as... as bad as it is for the patients, it's it's really bad for the frontline dedicated people who, you know, want to work as doctors and nurses and help people get well. And the way things are, they can't really do that. They have to, you know, just deal with crises and not prevention. And New York State is especially, is especially uh, frustrating and terrible. Both of our health departments, the New York City Department of Health and the New York State Department of Health, uh, have declared racism a public health hazard. They have vowed to deal with the so-called underlying conditions, and we know those weren't underlying conditions that so fed COVID. But New York City had a 365% increase in diabetes deaths in the first COVID surge. New York State, it was about 90% outside New York City. And this was a combination, the records then were a little not being kept precisely, but a combination of people with um, diabetes who died of COVID. And it wasn't all recorded, but it's mainly people with diabetes who got COVID. Okay, you had a 365% increase in deaths. We're three years later. Nothing has been done about diabetes in New York State or New York City. There are no, uh, you know, like increased community programs. Uh, we do self-care education, uh, you know, based, based on a model that's been really tested. It's really, really effective. It brings down people's uh, uh, blood sugar a lot. And so what are you going to say? We're three years later. And literally nothing has happened. Both the rate of death uh, for type 1 and type 2 went up during COVID. 
But here you are in, in New York State, and this is mainly based on the failure to address diabetes now. Aside from the COVID, it's premature deaths, you know, people dying before, I forget what the average age is. The average age of death has gone down faster in New York State than any other state. And that is mainly, mainly, mainly based on the failure to, you know, after you count COVID, it's the failure to address diabetes. So what do you say after a while? So why do you think that is? Like it's an epidemic currently. And it's an epidemic. One of, the, one of the statistics that I got from your health people website was Bronx residents are five to eight times more likely to die as a result of diabetes than people in high income New York City neighborhoods. One out of three residents in the South Bronx are pre-diabetic and one out of five already have diabetes. Correct. They're horrendous statistics. Well, to you know, the, it's horrendous. Both our public health departments know those statistics better than I do. That's where I get them. <laughs> but it does not. Um, I mean, sometimes, you know, my office is in the South Bronx and what makes it especially depressing is because we've seen what people can do, but we can't and other people can't either get funding to do the self-care education that really helps them. And I know in type one diabetes, self-care education is very, very important too. But I used to ask myself, what would be enough death and what would be enough money available for these health departments to finally move? And it turned out a 365% increase in deaths wasn't enough. And then they got, the city got $6.9 billion in federal COVID aid, which they could have, you know, used part of that to start working on bringing down uh, the chronic diseases that so fueled COVID, especially diabetes. And the state got $13.2 billion. So it turned out there wasn't enough money because that was not, you know, taken out part of it and really used to work on. And what is bothersome is, and I think you find this in the type one community, you know, it's almost like there's been a stigma put on the whole community. There's something wrong with them. And, you know, with type two, it's like, oh God, they ate a candy bar. It's their own fault, you know? So, the public impression has so been created that nothing can be done about this, which is a complete utter lie that it's very hard. For example, you know, when I'm working, I try and work with legislatures and like the city council and they come from these communities. Of course they want to help their community but they are so immersed. This mythology has been so overwhelming uh, that you, it's very slow. You have to sit and explain, look, here's what can be done. It's proven it can be done and it's very slow. <laughs> so is it almost as if you feel there's an element of because there seems to be a wide, like a widespread belief that type two specifically is 
your own fault to a certain extent is what people are trying to imply. That's why something isn't being done to the extent as it should be. Yes, it's that. And for type two, type two black populations have especially high rates. Uh, Low income populations have higher rates. So that comes into it too. And there's definitely racism in the lack of response. It's like, okay, it's their fault. They're eating wrong. But when you see how people with type one who are mainly white, because it's a population genetic, uh, they've been commodified too. They've been very badly treated. So I think beyond the racism, and as I say, I think class is very, very important in this. In type two, most of most of white people who have uh, type two are, if they're not low income, they're lower middle class, they're not respected, those things together. But what you get to in the end, I think why it is so hard to move and just do basic things. I mean, one thing that almost makes me scream every single day is that the diabetes-related amputation rate in New York City and New York State has increased 100% in the past 10 years. 100%. We have never heard a single health commissioner in the city or state, whether they're white, black, Asian or Hispanic, we have everyone in New York City, as you know, and we've had everyone for health commissioners. Not one of them has ever made one single public comment on this horrifying situation or more important said, you know, I really will devote myself to reversing that. Because even the American Diabetes Association, which we know is not a radical organization, says that 85% of these amputations are preventable. And they are. I I have a peer educator here when she came in 10 years ago. Yeah, she'd just been told she'd have to have her foot removed. She still has it. So why do you think that is, Chris? They are statistics that can't be ignored. Well, that shouldn't be ignored. Exactly. Like 100% increase in amputation. How can that be ignored? Let me put it this way. Each of those amputations now costs over the lifetime, the shortened lifetime after you have an amputation, your life is shortened. Oh, like they say, a toe amputation is a little amputation. I don't want to scare people, but you know, your life is shortened even after a toe amputation somewhat. But on average, each of those amputations are four hundred to five hundred thousand dollars in direct medical costs. Now, do I think people at the top think, oh, I won't do that because, you know, there's $500,000 going into this huge medical system? No, they don't say like one, two, but it's like, it's such an industry. People don't think of challenging it. So is this predominantly a government issue or predominantly a manufacturer issue? It's both. It's both. I mean, you, you saw when the government finally moved, even, even though they only brought down the costs in Medicare, the companies finally realized that they had to do something because 
there was a movement, there was national attention, it had the president's attention, uh, people were getting uh, upset and angry, you know, um, um, as we say, both sides of the aisle, Republicans and Democrats have a lot of constituents with both type one and type two diabetes. So that showed where government movement um, made things move in the pharmaceuticals beyond what the government had done because they see the proverbial writing on the wall. I mean, with the amputations now, uh, I'm looking at as, uh, but the, the state health department would really have to do this. It's clear, as you know, we have this mammoth health industry in New York especially New York City, which on the one hand is a benefit. I mean, we have, I forget, we, we, we train a large percentage of American doctors. We have these academic medical centers, et cetera, et cetera. But once something is, you know, really producing income, which amputations do, they're just not going to move by themselves. So, we're, we're trying to get, which they can do, the state health department, to make a regulation that every hospital system has to have a plan. It's called a limb salvage plan, a plan for reducing unnecessary diabetes amputations. That hasn't happened. But I don't think without that kind of, I mean, they do license these hospitals. The state doesn't directly administer them, but they license them. And, and they, they can put certain regulations in their licenses, and then they pretty much have to do it. I have in front of me the price increases of insulin over the last few decades. And in my head, I'm thinking, is there a direct correlation between the fact that the price of insulin has gone up and why the percentage of amputations has gone up and the percentage of deaths has gone up. Because to me, that doesn't seem like a coincidence. Like I'm looking at the insulin price increases. 1972, a vial of insulin used to be $9. 1996, it was $33. 2010, it was $110. 2017, $275. So to me, it doesn't strike me as just a coincidence that people in lower income neighborhoods or areas or communities are now seeing more amputations, more deaths, and strangely enough, the price of insulin has increased so much. You know, that is a very significant point, which I never thought of. That was part one of this episode. If you are listening to this on the day of the release, part two will be out tomorrow. But if you're listening on any other day, part two is the next episode on our list.